still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that have, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 3, Episode 2 Janet Brown 10th of April, 1995. 1995 started with the sad news of the death of Fred West by suicide in his prison cell at Winston Green Prison in Birmingham. I say it was sad news as it meant that he had escaped the justice that his victims and their families deserved. West was a deranged sexual psychopath who had been charged with the murders of 12 women and children two of whom were his own daughters. His equally deranged and sexually psychopathic wife Rosemary is still in prison and will, rightly, end her days there. As the year progressed, there were several quite notable developments, including the switching on of the Sizewell B nuclear power plant, the only pressurised water reactor in the UK. It synchronised with the national grid on February the 14th. The classic car brand MG returned to the market after 15 years of being mothballed. Neil Kinnock resigns from Parliament following an offer to become a European Commissioner. He had been the leader of the opposition since 1982 and had contested several elections. Way back then, losing an election wasn't the matter of resignation that it has become today. In government were the Conservative Party being led by John Major. During this time, there were some terrible political infights between the Eurosceptic right-wing of the already right-wing party, causing a great deal of instability, which would lead eventually to an unsuccessful leadership challenge. Little has changed. The financial world receives a shock at the end of February, when the Queen's Bank, Bearings, collapses following the reckless and unsupported financial dealings of rogue trader Nick Leeson. The £1.4 billion of losses because of his actions would cause a period of self-reflection for the banking industry. By tea time, they were back to their old tricks. The Easter holidays would be a welcome break from studies for British schoolchildren, with the older ones looking to earn some extra pocket money and the far more valuable experience of the working world during this break. For 15-year-old Ben Marshall, Monday the 11th of April would be a day that will stay with him forever. Ben had gone to work with his dad, Nick. Nick Marshall ran a building company and was in the process of replacing the tiles and roof on the double garage in the driveway of Hall Farm, Sprigs Holly Lane, Radnidge. Radnidge is on the Oxfordshire-Berkshire border. 
Westview was a fine house that the owners had spent some time and considerable money improving and extending over the years. Originally a farm worker's cottage, the property had been extended, redeveloped, further extended and made into a palimpsest of brick and flint, traditional building materials in the area. It had, at the time, a small tarmac drive outside of the old stables and near to the front door that stood in a little porch. In the drive that Monday morning, with a metallic blue coloured Volvo and the red Mini Metro with learner plates of the mother and daughter who lived there. Everything seemed normal, but when Nick and Ben got out of the van, they could hear that the internal burglar alarm was sounding. Nick tried knocking on the front door, but received no reply. Ben looked into the house through the windows of the sitting room, which had the curtains pulled back, and saw the naked body of the homeowner, Janet Brown. She lay in a pool of blood, and it was obvious that she had been subjected to lethal violence. Immediately, the police are called and a murder investigation is launched. At 51, Janet Brown was the model of educated rural success. Her three children, Zara, Benedict and Roxanne, were either living away from home, away at university, or, as in the case of the youngest, Roxanne, studying for A-levels and a place at university. Her husband, Graham Brown, was a doctor who worked for pharmaceutical companies. His work took him away from home a great deal. And at the time in question, Dr. Brown was in Switzerland, while Janet herself worked as a research nurse at Oxford University. They were comfortably respectable. Their house was set in 11 acres of Berkshire countryside, and with that respectability came a level of reserve. Although the children had taken part in the normal country life activities, horse riding, and various other community activities for the well healed, Janet Brown never really mingled or got to know any of the other parents there. Some reports have labelled her as being standoffish or distant, but I think it's more likely that Janet Brown was simply a private person who didn't really have the type of personality that craved the tangle of friendships outside of her immediate family. She was quintessentially English in many ways. The family had lived in their house for around 10 years and had taken the decision to sell the property and move on. The sale hadn't been swift, with the property being on the market for almost a year before a purchaser was found. As part of the sale, the couple had agreed to put a new roof on the garage in the drive. The original one was sagging through the incautious application of time and the British climate. Nothing out of the ordinary really, Alterations and repairs as part of the sale are always happening. The sale was a week or two away from completion. The home that the family shared was neat, spacious and well kept. By today's standards, the buyer landed an absolute steal by purchasing it for £345,000, which is around £652,000 in today's money. For a large, detached property with 11 acres of land in rural Berkshire, that's an incredibly good price. It was set back from the road by about 10 metres and separated from its neighbours by some distance. It was well appointed with seclusion and privacy being part of the appeal. 
Sprague's Holly Lane is on the edge of Radnidge, an ancient village in Berkshire. The landscape is a mix of wide open arable fields, paddocks, copses and hedges. There are a number of small agri-engineering companies as well as farms in the area. The village was without a shop, a sad fact of the gentrification of villages of the UK. Inside the home was a baffling and complex crime scene that created a tsunami of questions that remain unanswered. Janet Brown had her hands cuffed behind her back, her mouth and nose covered in packing tape. She was face down at the bottom of the stairs. Janet had been beaten severely around the head with a blunt object, which caused her death. She was completely nude, apart from her jewellery, but showed no signs of sexual assault, either before or after her death. That isn't to say there wasn't a sexual motive for the attack. In the sitting room, the television and video had been unplugged as if they were being made ready for being taken away. But it was extremely popular in the mid-90s to unplug the TV and video at night. This had been due to a number of house fires started from faulty plugs or plugs that had been poorly fitted. This was why, in 1995, all electrical appliances would be sold with fitted, moulded plugs. The Brown family were also in the process of moving house, so were they unplugged before being packed? It's not known for sure, but one of the daughters identified it as being unusual. Along one wall of the sitting room was a set of full-height French windows that led through to the enclosed courtyard and then led through to the expansive enclosed plot of land via a single metal gate in the corner near the house. One of these windows was broken. What a way it was broken. The windows themselves were aluminium framed double glazed sealed units. They were quite standard insulation before the ubiquitous UPVC frames took over. Sealed double glazing units are quite difficult to break and it generally takes a short sharp tap with a nail punch or similar pointed object in a corner of the pane to get it to shatter which would have been noisy and risked injury from breaking glass. So this offender did something quite, quite remarkable. Unbelievable, in fact. On the outside of the French window, whoever it was had, with a glass cutter, scored a human-sized hole close to the edge of the frame all the way round the pane. The offender had then placed weatherproof tape on the glass before tapping on the glass to break it before pulling it away in chunks, which were left on the flagstones. Having dealt with the exterior pane, they found themselves confronted by the second interior pane, so smashed it at some point. This was taken to be the entry point initially, but there are problems with that, as we'll see later. Throughout the house, the lights were switched on, which would have lit the house up like Crystal Palace, as my mother would say and it would have been very noticeable on a dark April evening. All of the curtains downstairs were open, and having grown up in a house not dissimilar in location to this one, curtains at the back of the house that looked out across countryside were rarely shut, but those towards the road were. It may well have been the case in this instance. Upstairs was different. The main bedroom, 
had the blinds drawn and the bed cover thrown back. A dressing gown was crumpled on the floor near the ensuite bathroom and Janet's clothes were neatly folded. It was unusual for Janet to have the blinds drawn as she had the habit of sleeping with them open. Apart from this, little else was disturbed upstairs. Cupboards had been opened partially, but nothing had been disturbed. The blind in the bedroom had been closed carefully as to not disturb the items precariously balanced for the sake of aesthetics on the windowsill. The majority of the blood spatter was isolated to the vicinity of the walls, ceiling, furniture and floor surrounding where Janet had died. But it did seem that the killer had either paused the attack for a while before striking her again, or that the killer had attacked her once, believed she was dead, had moved around the house before discovering that Janet was either still alive, or making noises similar to being alive, or they simply returned to her to mete out more violence to the defenceless woman on the floor. Even then, Spatter indicates that the assailant had paused between swings of the blunt instrument, thought to be an iron bar or a crowbar, to either take a breath or talk to her before swinging the weapon again. Circular drops of blood found on Janet's back showed the pauses. Differences in the angle of the wounds showed the two periods of violence were undertaken from different positions. In processing the crime scene, a number of marks thought to be connected to the incident were found. Potential spatter and what appeared to be a smeared handprint gave hope of identification. These were ruled out unfortunately and the handprint proved to be from a heating engineer who had worked at the property some weeks before. There was, in fact, a remarkable lack of forensic evidence from what appeared to be an amateurish burglary gone wrong. Janet was removed from her home and taken to hospital for a full post-mortem examination. Around Janet's head, packing tape had been wound tightly nine times. It was tight enough to have killed Janet by asphyxiation in a very short time, and the sequence of events aren't clear as to when the tape was put on her, but it was close to the time of her demise. Janet had wounds to her left eye and lip which could have been as a result of the force of the blows on the back of her head pushing her face into the floor repeatedly, but this hasn't been established beyond doubt. There were no defensive wounds, ruling out a struggle. Janet had been compliant with her assailant, raising further questions about the need for violence at all. There were marks on her ankles that seemed to indicate that her feet had at one time been bound. This would have left Janet extremely vulnerable. Minor abrasions and bruises were found on Janet's lower back and buttocks, and these seemed to indicate that, whilst handcuffed, Janet had been on her back at some point, but the fatal blows all came from behind and were focused on the back of her head. There appeared to be bruises from fingers on one of her thighs, as if at some point the killer had moved her legs. As Janet was found naked, the possibility of placing the bound and helpless woman in a humiliating position for the gratification of the attacker became feasible. 
It has also been speculated by some of the people involved in the case that it could be that Janet had been photographed by the intruder for mementos. Janet was found naked apart from her jewellery, which is curious to say the least. Like most women, Janet was known to remove her jewellery at night, but here she was wearing her earrings, rings, a solid necklace and her watch. It simply didn't add up. Why was she naked apart from her jewellery? The only time I can think of a woman wearing nothing but jewellery would be for a physical liaison. But if the attacker was acting out a psychosexual fantasy of controlling the remarkable Mrs Brown, it's likely that whoever it was had made Janet put on her jewellery. A lot of prop-based fetishes involve inanimate objects as key features of the fantasy. It's why dressing up, handcuffs and lingerie is so important to many people. There's the obvious visual stimulus and lingerie looks lovely, as does a lot of the naughty clothes and accessories. There's also a great deal of class about a mature woman wearing nothing but jewellery and heels. And it seems that a possibility is that the perpetrator had made her put them on, maybe as part of the fantasy fulfilment, although it's not stated categorically anywhere that Janet had removed them earlier in the evening. Whilst the scenes of crime officers conducted their meticulous examination of the house and Janet, the major incident team, led by Detective Superintendent Michael Short and Detective Inspector John Bradley, began their laborious task of building a timeline to put the attack in context. That evening was due to be just Janet and Roxanne at home, but in the afternoon Roxanne had contacted her mother to say that a friend of hers had passed her driving test that day and they were going out for a meal to celebrate and that she wouldn't be back that night. All perfectly normal. Last minute changes with young adults happen all the time and with Roxanne being a level-headed studious young woman, Janet would have had no concerns. Still, that information was only known between Janet, Roxanne and the friends Roxanne was with. That evening, Hall Farm should have had two women at home. Telephone records were essential for developing the course of events. At ten past eight that evening, Janet received a call from a friend of Roxanne, who, unwittingly, became the last person to speak to her. Twenty minutes later, at half past eight, Dr Brown tried to telephone his wife from Switzerland, but the call was unanswered. At nine o'clock that evening, Nick Marshall, the builder telephoned the house, but again the call went unanswered. The investigation widened out and appeals were made to the local residents, and one was found who had driven past the house at 20 past 10 that evening. He stated that he could hear the exterior burglar alarm sounding, but didn't report it. This isn't actually that unusual in England. Burglar alarms exist in a strange hinterland in the British psyche. They're sensible installations that can add value to the property and reduce the household insurance premium. But they're also an intrusive annoyance when they sound and the default position for the British seems to be, oh, it's probably a cat or something. I hope they turn it off soon. I don't really understand it and I'm equally guilty of completely ignoring or being annoyed by the sound of alarms. 
there may be an element of not wanting to waste police time with a call to a faulty or overly sensitive alarm, and there may be an element of thinking that the alarm system is connected to some remote location who will notify the police. This certainly seems to have been the case, as the person didn't notify the police, but continued on his way. Later that evening, the same person drove past Hall Farm again, and reports that the alarm was silent by that time. This change in alarm states isn't as mysterious as it seems. The system the Browns had fitted gave two alarms, one exterior and one interior. The interior alarm, once activated, would continue to sound until a key was turned and a code was entered in the central control box, but the exterior alarm would only sound for around 20 minutes before shutting off. This witness statement places the alarm being sounded very firmly in the window between 10pm and 10.40pm. If we consider that the exterior alarm ran for 20 minutes and the passing motorist heard it either just immediately before it ended or just immediately after it began. The interior alarm rang all night and was only silenced after the police investigation began, but it was inaudible from the road. The alarm was only activated by two panic buttons, which were located in the main bedroom and the sitting room. This seems like an unusual and somewhat deficient setup. Motion sensors were available for some home systems in the UK in 1995, but the panic button option might have been a cheaper option to install and given the relatively low crime rate for the area in the preceding years, the options to have buttons would have been a way to qualify for a possible reduction in the insurance premium without overinvesting or extra expenditure. These, in hindsight, seem like odd choices to make, but the family were canny with their money and were planning a wholesale emigration to Canada for Graham's work. Wealthy professionals often live comfortable lives as opposed to lavish lifestyles with excessive spending. Spending a little to gain a sensible regular discount seems to be quite a sensible option. If the area was riddled with drug or gang related crime, a more robust and reactive alarm system would have been the obvious spend. But apart from the occasional instance where criminals from major urban areas target rural dwellings, crime is often restricted to thefts of agricultural equipment, livestock or wildlife related crimes. So the questions are, when was the alarm sounded and by whom? A thorough investigation of the scene produced some tantalising clues as to the sequence of events. In the bedroom, there was a fragment of tape, the same kind that was used to bind Janet's head, but it didn't match the ends of the tape as found on Janet. Was this a fragment from the tape used to bind Janet's feet originally? How was it taken from the tape? The perpetrator had bought the tape with them. Did he or possibly she, bite it? Did they tear it with their fingers? Were there fragments of fingerprints on it? Were there epithelial cells present? Has the evidence been retested since the development of low copy number DNA testing? We'll have to come back to that later.
A more detailed examination revealed that it was a man's dressing gown crumpled on the floor of the ensuite. Janet and the Browns were tidy people. They folded clothes after taking them off at night, so it would seem to indicate that there had been a point where, if Janet had been wearing it, she disrobed, either voluntarily or at the command of the intruder. The shower head was found to be set for a taller person, but that, I believe, is a misleading assumption to make. I always try to have the shower head set as high as possible, not because I will knock it with my hands when shampooing my hair, but because the water spreads further and it's a nicer feeling, for me, to have the water fall a little further. Other shower heights suit other people, but without regular photographs taken periodically to verify that Janet liked the shower head to be close to her, there's no way of treating this other than a potential red herring. The assumption became that the attacker had showered before leaving and the police went to the considerable effort of taking the shower apart to test all the individual elements of the shower, plug unit, the pipework and every single seal to check for traces of blood, to no avail. The toilet seat was left up and that is strange. This was an ensuite bathroom of a woman who essentially lived alone. Why was the toilet seat up? The crime scene didn't make a lot of sense. If it was a suspected burglary gone wrong, why was Janet still wearing her jewellery? Why had nothing obvious, or actually, been taken? The disturbance of the house seems to have been almost staged by someone who knew the house well and was there for the sole reason to harm Janet, or possibly Roxanne, before deciding to make it look like a burglary. And those French doors, well, what a mystery they were and continue to be. A more detailed examination of the scene by the French doors revealed that they were an even more complicated series of events than was first apparent. The tape from the outside seems to be very strange. Placing tape over the window then scoring it with a glass cutter is the stuff of crime fiction, but at least they allow that in general the hole be small enough to facilitate a limb to reach in and open a latch. But whoever decided to enter Hall Farm had done so in such an elaborate and unfeasible manner as to defy belief. They had decided to remove the whole pane, making the task lengthier and louder than necessary. They then, after all of that effort, smashed the window to get in. Or did they? On the carpet immediately adjacent to the French doors, there was only minimal shards of glass, and the remainder was outside in the courtyard. There was also a notable lack of glass fragments inside the house, which if the crime is a burglary gone wrong, and the windows had been smashed from the outside, the perpetrator would have picked up fragments of glass on their shoes and walked it into the crime scene. In fact, only one glass shard was recovered from the vicinity of Janet's body. A single fragment from a shattered French window. As the sweep of the house continued, officers found a basket in one of the spare rooms upstairs had been opened. It contained Janet's scuba diving equipment. 
Being affluent, the Browns enjoyed exotic holidays and pastimes that were often out of the reach of lower demographics. Scuba is not a cheap sport, but Janet had a sufficient enough interest to invest in the pastime. What is of note with this discovery is that the case containing her scuba diving equipment seems to have been the only place that the intruder paid any real attention to or searched. It seems oddly specific, and from it the ever-present question of why rears its none-too-pretty face. What was in the diving chest? Had Janet recovered something from somewhere that someone wanted back? Was the killer just surprised to find the equipment? Why was nothing taken? Underneath Janet, police found the key to the handcuff she was wearing, which is a strange place for them to be, but not quite as strange as theories of the crime that were put forward regarding their location. It has been speculated that Janet had been attempting to pick up the keys when her attacker first hit her in the head. Her hands were handcuffed behind her back. Picking them up would have been difficult, but not impossible, and only with enough time to try several times. Had the killer dropped the keys, and Janet attempted to grab them, which resulted in the intruder hitting her almost as a reflex, then stopped for a while to compose themselves before returning to beat her some more. But if the killer knew that Janet was trying to get the keys, why leave them there? The handcuffs, too, have been a problem for the investigation. Judging by the photographs of them, they appear to be cheap Chinese-produced pressed metal ones. They were sold in the millions in the UK. A market had developed for them during the 1970s as part of the punk movement. And then a new wave, goth and alternatives that emerged from the ashes of the punk scene all had fans who enjoyed wearing the symbol of police power as a challenge and symbolic anti-establishment pose. They could have come from anywhere in the UK and it's never been established as to whether they were a pair that the Browns, or at least one of their children, had bought into the house. These were normal healthy adolescents. They were in college and university. If one of the children had picked them up as part of experimenting with identity, the surprise would be none. During the police interview with Graham Brown, the subject of the handcuffs was raised. The police had to establish context for the items in the scene. Dr Brown remembered that there had been a pair in the house at some point, but couldn't remember where they were or where he had last seen them. A little surprise there, as Dr Brown had been working for Sieber Geike in Switzerland for two years, and his commutes were frugal and considered. The family would profit well from his location in Switzerland, but it would have been a waste of money to return every weekend. So the arrangement was that he would reside there and return once a month or so. To outsiders, this seems like the marriage was in disarray. But to me, it's a sensible decision taken with an eye on saving and making money. Further examination of the house, upstairs and down, revealed even more confusing clues that made little to no sense when put together with the crime scene. Upstairs, forensic officers found dilute traces of blood on some of the light switches. They clearly indicated that the killer had washed the blood from their hands following the savage attack on Janet Brown. 
which only raises further questions. If the killer had been interrupted by a startled Janet Brown in the evening at some point between ten past eight and half past eight, they then subdued her, stripped her, bound her, then roughly removed the tape or other binding from her ankles, manipulated her legs in some way, and then made her walk downstairs naked, apart from her jewellery, then bound her head with tape so tightly that it would have killed her by asphyxiation within minutes. The attacker struck her with an iron bar, possibly a crowbar, twice from one position. Then as she lay dying, they came back and continued the assault with deadly but measured fury, as if pausing between blows, before vanishing in the night. This was no burglary gone wrong. This was something altogether stranger. This was something much, much darker. Those closest to, and their relationships with, the deceased came under the critical eye of the SIO and his team. The Browns' marriage was examined. It became clear that the couple were not a close couple. The long-distance relationship for a number of years had placed a strain upon the marriage. However, even though there was a distance between the two, it didn't mean that there was malice from either side. They were a long-established family unit. Not the besotted whimsy of romantic love, but the more fundamental kind of love. Enduring, stable and realist. They had just sold their home and were in the process of moving to Canada together. They had worked hard on their children's future and they had prospered. Graham Brown was ruled out of the investigation very quickly. He had tried to telephone from his Swiss base the evening she was attacked and had immediately flown back on hearing the news. He was as helpful as could be with the police and all of the connections linked to him were dead ends. The children came under scrutiny. Zara, at 22, was the eldest child, a language graduate who had a thriving career in London and no connections to indicate even a remote link. Benedict was studying at Exeter University and even though it was the Easter holiday, there is no indication that he had returned home to Radnidge or that his university was on break at the same time as the school Roxanne attended. But again, there was no link between Benedict and anyone who would have been in his circle of friends. Roxanne was due to be home that night, but the news of a friend's passing their driving test in the afternoon had caused a change in plans. They were all going for a meal in the evening, then Roxanne was going to stay over. The holiday period meant that there was no pressure for her to return home. Janet had been happy with that, and so had started her evening in a manner that was, it seems, familiar. She prepared herself a meal, followed by eating the meal in her room, then by settling down for the night. Lives, even happy or dynamic ones, can become little treadmills of repetition. There are a lot of questions that need to be answered about this case. Has everybody who had been within earshot of the celebration that Roxy went to been traced and eliminated? Is it possible that someone who knew the girls were celebrating had seen it as an opportunity for a little breaking and entering for thrills or gain? Well, it seems highly unlikely. The phone call from Roxanne's friend was received at ten past eight, but by half past eight, when Dr Brown called, calls were no longer being answered. It's not clear to anyone outside of the investigation who the friend was 
or where they were. There's also the curious point of entry. The walled courtyard could be seen as a good place to break in, if you discount every other point of entry that would have been far easier for a genuine burglar to notice and exploit, other than a complicated process of taping the glass, cutting the glass, breaking the pane out, then somehow gaining entry but being sure to smash the window later, but overlooking the pattern of glass in the shutter. There could be one way that the majority of the glass in the frame could end up outside from a break from the outside. The window would have to be smashed from the bottom. Although this too would spread enough shards, fragments and other contaminants onto the assailant as to make leaving trace evidence elsewhere inevitable. The courtyard is also a really dangerous place for a burglar to make an entry into the house. It had one entrance and exit. It was surrounded by high walls and offered no hiding place. It was the least sensible place for an experienced burglar to break in from. It was the most vulnerable place for a burglar to be. It was the ideal place for someone making it look like a burglary. As well as the spatter from the attack, which indicated that during the initial blows, Janet had turned quickly, possibly to avoid an incoming blow, there were several fingerprints found. One proved to be an exciting development as it appeared to be an almost complete handprint. Unfortunately, it was the handprint from a heating engineer who had been in the home in the weeks preceding the attack. In total, 60 prints were recovered from the house, with almost all of them being identified. But four of them have never been matched to anyone police have fingerprinted in the course of the investigation. There's also a really interesting situation with the alarm system. The control panel for it was located in the front room by the front door, as was one of the panic buttons. The control panel itself was housed in a small wall-mounted box and required a key to activate and disarm it along with a four-digit numerical code. When police examined the alarm system, they found that the key had been turned halfway. Had Janet been in the process of setting the alarm when the intruder gained access to the house? How had the intruder gained access to the house? If the French window had been the point of entry, but the majority of the glass from the second interior pane was outside, indicating that it had been broken from the inside, had the intruder been let in? Investigations into the private life of Janet Brown uncovered no evidence of an affair. Was this, like so much of the scene appears to be, staging? Half-hearted attempts to make the scene look like a burglary gone wrong. The search had been delicate, exploratory, yet without the usual ransacking and disrespect for personal property. Whoever had committed the crime had two types of tape with them, the all-weather tape used on the window and the packing tape used to bind Janet. They were able to manipulate the tape without leaving any forensic evidence, no fingerprints or DNA. Were they expecting two women to be at home? 
the vehicles in the drive, Janet's Volvo and Roxanne's Metro, would have indicated that there were people at home. So it's sensible to speculate that the perpetrator was prepared for dealing with two captives. Had they been watching the house as night fell? The property looked out across the sloping valley and woods beyond. So that aspect of the house was open to easy observation from some distance. Had the perpetrator been watching the family for a long time, perhaps feeding a fantasy of control and domination of the woman in the house? How had they gained access? Was the perpetrator armed with a key? Who else was in the area at the time? Thames Valley Police made an appeal for information and although the reports they got back were sparse, they did offer some hope. A car was reported to be parked on a small triangle of grass not far from the house on the evening of the 10th of April. It was said to contain three black men and one white man who were trying to conceal their faces. That is a fairly suspicious occurrence on a country lane, but it might not be as damning as it first seems. It might have been the case that they were four young men who liked to share a joint whilst listening to music or chatting, and the countryside is isolated enough so as to not to draw the attention of the police. So finding a convenient spot to park up, they chatted in the April evening, their eyes becoming accustomed to the twilight and darkness, so that when a car appears, with their headlights on full to illuminate the country lane, their first reaction would have been to shy away from the bright lights, not to hide their faces, but just to turn away from the bright lights. It's possible anyway. Those four men have yet to be traced. If this is you, and it was just innocent, please come forward. You might have a vital piece of information. As part of the process of elimination, police even briefly considered that there might have been a financial element to the crime. Who stood to benefit from Janet's death? Upon checking, the police found that Janet's insurance had lapsed two years before and hadn't been renewed. Janet had no life insurance, so no one stood to benefit in that way. There was £40,000 in her bank account, and no unusual or unexpected payments had been made, nor any unusual deposits. Unbeknownst to her family, Janet had not made a will either, meaning that she died in testate, with her entire share going directly to her husband. But he was absolutely absolved of any involvement. Money was very quickly eliminated as a motive. The crime scene continued to puzzle. The killer had brutally murdered a woman in front of a broad window that faced onto the road in the early evening or later at night with the lights on. Even with net curtains, a lit room at night is clearly distinguishable from the road. So anyone passing could have caught them in the act of killing poor Janet. They were also comfortable enough to clean themselves up somewhere in the house, step over their victim, go upstairs, turn the lights on 
leaving very dilute traces of blood on the switches, then come down again, stepped over Janet once more, and then what? Had they triggered the alarm, hoping that the scene would be found more quickly, maybe in the hope that their violence hadn't killed her? It seems that whoever did this terrible thing had a level of familiarity with the house. They had been in there before that night. As the Browns had, over the years, continued the expansion of Hall Farm by extensions, adding features as they stayed there, there would have been a steady flow of various tradesmen. Decorators, carpenters, window installers and all manner of associated trades pertaining to maintaining a house. Any one of them could have been the person to become fixated on Janet and possibly Roxanne too. If the primary focus was Roxanne and they had been watching the house from the countryside of the house, would they have known she wasn't going to be home? Was the violence delivered to Janet as an outpouring of rage that Roxanne wasn't there? How long had the killer been in the property? Was the French window left as a red herring to confuse police in regard the timings of the attack? Had they had the presence of mind to bring clothes with them, as there would have been a considerable amount of spatter on them? Were they wearing overalls? Was it DPM as favoured by poachers and gamekeepers alike? Who would notice dark stains on dirty farm overalls? How would they prevent the transfer of trace evidence during the commission of any of the various crimes in the house that night? Criminal psychologist Paul Britton drew up a couple of alternatives. The first was that the killer was in his 30s to 40s, likely married, possibly with children, and had been in an agitated state for a number of weeks or months afterwards. Although given that the killer had cleaned up and then moved around the house after killing Janet, possibly with the alarm sounding, and did so in a calm and collected manner, I doubt this element. I think they would have been walking around with an air of untouchability, a smugness at the fulfilment of a long-standing fantasy. Paul Britton also speculates that the killer was a member of the Radnidge community in some way. It's possible that he has been thought of as a little odd or had been caught seemingly inadvertently looking into people's homes for some time before the attack. What is clear is that they were clever enough to leave almost no evidence and that which was left was baffling. The second profile that Britain drew up was of a pair of teenage boys entering a posh house for kicks and then getting caught up in the situation. But it doesn't fit with the evidence. Had it been kids, they would have made a whole lot more mess and something would have been taken. The forensic awareness needed to be capable of beating a defenseless woman to death, calmly washing their hands, then moving around in the house for a couple of hours, leaving no forensic traces whatsoever, from a pair of teenage housebreakers is just too much of a stretch. I believe that the person responsible is much closer to the family than anyone would like to imagine. 
the case went completely cold, but the police didn't stop working on it. During a periodic review, samples were treated to the latest forensic developments, low copy number DNA, and other advanced techniques managed to obtain a profile. His head of the major crimes review team, Peter Byrne, speaking at a reappeal press conference in 2015. Today is the 20th anniversary of the murder of Janet Brown. Janet was a 51-year-old mother of three who lived in Radnich, close to High Wycombe. On the evening of the 10th of April 1995, Janet was home alone. We believe that the offender entered the house sometime between 8.15pm and 10.15pm. It's unusual for an offence to take place during that time when people are normally at home and awake. Janet was found handcuffed, naked and gagged. She died as a result of horrific injuries to her head. The Major Crime Investigation Review Team have commenced a review of the circumstances surrounding Janet's death and have submitted items to forensic scientists in the hope of using advancements in forensic science in the intervening 20 years. This has produced a, a DNA profile which isn't that of the family. This new evidence will link the offender to the scene. I would appeal to the public, please make contact with the police with any suspicions you have in relation to who may be responsible for Janet's death. There is a reward totalling £20,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the offender. I'd ask you to ring either the police number of 101 or anonymously on Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 Thank you. In all the time that has elapsed since the original horrific crime, the offender has not committed any offence that would require their DNA to be sampled. Otherwise, they would be in the National DNA Database, nor have any close relatives. It seems likely that this person bears a great burden, but also has great composure. His wife may have an idea that he likes to dominate and dehumanise during sex. He might also have no outward signs of the homicidal maniac lurking just beneath the surface. If you live in the High Wycombe area, please share this podcast among your friends there. Someone, now in their 50s or 60s, if the profile is correct, carries this secret with them. That person carries the answers as to how this came about and why such a gentle and loving parent to her children was taken so cruelly, so inexplicably from their lives. I'll leave the final words of this week's episode with the words of Janet's youngest daughter, Roxanne. Our mum's murder was planned and brutal and the horror of her death stays with us every day. She was attacked and killed in our family home, a place where we should all be safe. There is new DNA evidence which will help Thames Valley Police 
bring the killer to justice, but we need your help to find them. If you know or suspect anything, no matter how small you think it might be, you can call the Major Crime Investigation Review Team on 101 or Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. You can call anonymously if you have to and help us find who did it. She was a kind and loving person and her death broke our hearts. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash podcast. You can join in with the conversations about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting facebook slash podcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.